Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. On the 14th of September 2015, scientists opened a new window to observing the universe when, for the first time, they directly detected gravitational waves, rippled out through space-time from the merger of two black holes. In this episode, astronomer Tessa Baker explores how Einstein's theory of gravity predicted the existence of gravitational waves, how delicate experiments eventually confirmed their existence, and how we can translate this experimental data into sounds, allowing us to hear the universe. This talk was recorded from our theatre at the Royal Institution on the 19th of May 2023. You can watch the video version on our YouTube channel. Find the link in the episode description. Get tickets to our upcoming talks and live streams by heading to rigb.org. Now, over to the theatre. Hello everyone. Um, so my name's Tessa and I'm a cosmologist and a gravitational wave astronomer at Queen Mary University of London, just up the road in Mile End. I'm very lucky to be invited here to talk tonight in this incredible venue. And I'm very lucky that many of you consider gravity and cosmology um, suitable entertainment for a Friday night. So thank you for, thank you for coming along. I'm also incredibly lucky to be in the field of astronomy at this present time. Um, so the, um, within the past 10 years, we have seen a major revolution that has changed the face of astronomy. Um, and it's incredibly exciting to be part of that. And it's that, that revolution, that new window on the universe that I want to tell you about tonight. Astronomy is arguably one of the oldest sciences. We've been looking up at the night sky since we've been walking around on the Earth. And of course, for thousands of years, that meant naked eye astronomy, just looking at the sky with our eyes. Thousands of years later, uh, the first telescopes are developed in the 17th century by Galileo and other people um, working at the time. And within only a few hundred years of technological development, that takes us to our modern-day telescopes. So at the top there, I have a photo of the Vera Rubin Observatory in Chile. That's a state-of-the-art facility. It's just finished construction. Um, we at Queen Mary are very proud to be involved with it. And it's going to be taking data within the next two years or so. Down the bottom there, we have the James Webb Space Telescope, um, which many of you might have heard about in the news. Perhaps you saw it launch on Christmas Day 2021. Um, and you might have also seen some of the stunning first images um, released by, by the James Webb uh, team um, in the middle of last year. Okay, and if you haven't seen them, they're definitely worth Googling. They're just beautiful. But one thing links all of these um, parts of astronomy together, which is that they are all made using light. Right? In all these cases, we are seeing the universe. We're seeing distant galaxies or distant stars with our eyes. And this new era of astronomy I want to tell you about today is the first time we've found a different way to observe the universe. And this will be using something we call gravitational waves. Okay, and this new window on the universe opened on the 14th of September 2015. So really, not that long ago. And this new way of sensing the universe, you can think of as being akin to hearing the universe. 
So having these different senses on the universe, seeing it and also hearing it, and in the course of today's talk, I'll explain why I refer to it as hearing the universe. Having those two senses open is enabling us to learn lots of new things in astronomy that we haven't been able to before. So what we'll do today is I'll tell you something about gravity itself, then we'll talk about what these gravitational waves are, um, then we'll understand why we can think of them as the sounds of space-time. And finally, I want to tell you about one very special event that shows the power of combining this, this sight and this sound together. Now, um, I had to put an extra slide in my talk last night um, because something happened yesterday, and this shows you what an exciting field this is to be working in. So um, just yesterday, uh, just before two o'clock, we had an alert of a possible new detection of a, a new gravitational wave event. Now I realise I haven't told you yet what gravitational waves are, um, but this was, you know, this was so exciting I couldn't resist just not telling you about it. It's still early days, I have to say the data you know, needs more checks, so it's not confirmed yet. But this is what's happening, we're detecting these new events you know, regularly. But let's get back to our story. And the story is uh, going to start with um, Sir Isaac Newton. So if you've studied gravity at all um, at school, perhaps um, Newton is probably the person you, you meet first, right? He's credited as really thinking about gravitational forces um, in the first instance. Um, and the story goes that Newton was sitting under an apple tree in an orchard and an apple fell to the ground and that got him thinking about what makes the apple always be attracted to the earth. Probably this is a bit of a fairy tale, probably it didn't actually happen, but it's, it's a nice picture. And Newton formulated the first law of gravity. Now, there are only two equations in this talk, and I thought I would start strong and get one of them out of the way straight away, because it's an equation that I think a lot of people might remember from school, or um, maybe some of people who are still studying might, might meet it. So this is Newton's law of gravity. Um, and Newton says that the force between the apple and the earth is given by the mass of one object, so in this case the apple, times the mass of the earth, and divided by the square of the distance between their centres. And there's a number in there we call g, which just makes the units work out correctly. Okay, so, so Newton's given us a recipe for computing gravitational forces. But he hasn't really told us what gravity is. He's just, just given this, this force prescription. And what gravity really is, why there is a force of gravity, wouldn't really be touched upon for a few hundred years until it was picked up by Albert Einstein, arguably one of the most famous physicists of all time. Now, um, Einstein was definitely a person to sit and think hard about long-established scientific concepts, because, of course, Newton's law was long-established by then. Um, he has lots of really great quotes about human curiosity. So if you're ever having a down day at school or at work, you know, go look up Einstein quotes. Um, so he said something like this, right? The important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. He was a curious person. However, he did also say, 
a table, a chair, a bowl of fruit and a violin. What else does a person need to be happy? So I think Einstein might have lived a slightly different lifestyle from most of us. Okay, nevertheless, what's Einstein's big revolutionary idea? Here is a picture of the, the deep space, uh, well, of a deep patch of the universe. Every um, spot of light in this image is not a star, but a galaxy, okay? A collection of millions of stars. Now, I should stress that Einstein didn't have access to this kind of image. They weren't around in his day, um, which makes his kind of realizations even more incredible. Um, so when we look at this image, in between the galaxies, we have blackness, patches of empty space. And it's very tempting to think of that as just being nothingness, void. But what Einstein realized is that space itself, empty space, is not just a stage on which the rest of the universe happens. Space itself is part of the action. So space has dynamics. That means it can move, it can warp, and it can bend and stretch. And Einstein realized what causes space to bend is the presence of massive objects. Um, of course, you know, we're moving through three dimensions of space. And actually, in Einstein's theory, um, the correct thing to talk about is not just three dimensions of space, but he also folds time into there as a kind of fourth dimension. So we often say this word space-time, which kind of means the combination of space and time. And what Einstein's theory tells us is that if we have massive objects sitting in space, they effectively cause dips, dents, or, or wells. They bend that space around them like a piece of fabric. Okay, and the distortion they cause is um, proportional to their mass. So if something really heavy, it causes a really big dent in space-time or space. Uh, if we have something much lighter, this might be, you know, a, a moon, it just causes a much smaller dent in space-time. So that's um, Einstein's big revelation. Um, Okay, so Einstein formulated all of this mathematically. Now, don't panic, we're not going to um, go into the mathematics of his theory today. Um, but we can look at some of its main equations in word form. And this is what he published as his general theory of relativity in 1915. So the central equations of Einstein's theory say the following. On the left-hand side, they've got a bunch of mathematical objects which tell you about this, this bending of space and time. And they equate that to a bunch of objects on the right-hand side that describe what space contains. Matter, or even light and energy, if they're concentrated enough, can bend space-time. And so now we have a picture of what gravity is. When we have a small body, like a satellite or the apple, it feels this tendency to move towards the, the larger body because it's experiencing that distortion in space or space and time, and it has a tendency to move towards the bottom of that, that well, that dent in space-time. And that's what we experience as the force of gravity. Okay, so this is Einstein's big revelation, and he doesn't have to wait too long for some um, experimental confirmation of it. So luckily, four years later, there's a solar eclipse due. 
So the moon is going to come along and temporarily block out the sun, as seen from certain locations on the Earth. And Einstein spots this opportunity and he makes a prediction for a particular effect um, from his theory during that eclipse. And what he predicts is that the um, position of stars around the sun is going to wobble. So, of course, normally you can't see stars anywhere near the sun. It's far too bright. It just blocks them out. Okay, but during an eclipse, of course, the moon is in the way. It, it blocks out the sun. And now, uh, particularly if you've got a good telescope, you can see stars around the edge of the sun for a few minutes. And what Einstein's theory says should happen is that the positions of those stars should appear to move. So the light is coming from that distant star, but it's getting bent as it travels through this curved space-time well of the sun. We receive it here on Earth, but when we, we look at that light, our eyes just trace it back in a straight line. So we see the star as appearing where that white object is, where it says apparent position. And of course, once the sun has moved on, uh, as, as it continues orbiting through the sky, um, the effect goes away. Okay, so this wobble is just there for a few minutes during the eclipse. So Einstein predicts all of this using his theory, um, and it is confirmed. The, the results are a little bit you know, dodgy, it doesn't all work perfectly, but enough um, for the newspapers to proclaim this a success for Einstein's theory. Um, and this is probably my favourite um, newspaper clipping of all time. Um, lights all askew in the heavens. Men of science, and I'm afraid to say at that time it was mainly men of science, I hope we can convince you that is no longer the case. Men of science, more or less agog. Who uses the word agog these days? Agog um, over results of eclipse observations. Einstein theory triumph. The best bit. Stars not where they seemed or were calculated to be, but nobody need worry. <laughs> don't you wish the tabloids did that today? It's okay, guys, don't panic. Everything's going to be fine. Uh, a book for 12 wise men. And so the idea at the time was that Einstein's theory was so complicated that only a handful of people on Earth would understand it. Okay? Today, we teach Einstein's theory to physics undergraduates all around the world. Okay, so Einstein had had um, his theory um, confirmed, or at least um, he'd had some evidence for it confirmed. However, there's still a secret excuse me, hiding in Einstein's theory. And to talk about this secret, I need to introduce you to some objects I think of as the ghosts of stars. Um, so, when stars um, die, that is, when they've finished burning all their, their fuel that keeps them alive for, as, as, you know, like the sun shining, when they finish burning all that fuel, they undergo a spectacular set of processes in which they throw off a lot of their outer layers and they leave behind a very, very dense core. And there's a couple of forms those cores can take, but we'll be interested in two particular types today. Um, one is black holes and the other is called neutron stars. Now, um, probably people have some kind of notion of black holes maybe coming from um, popular science, from interstellar or, or something like that. 
So you, you might know that they are these uh, sinister, scary regions of space um, which don't let anything out. It's more or less true. Um, so uh, a black hole is an ultra, ultra collapsed region of space such that nothing can escape, not even light. And what's happening in this simulation here, and this is a simulation, not a, a real image, is that um, you're seeing some um, gas that's about to fall into the black hole, and it's very hot, and so it's emitting light. And that's why in this case, you, you can sort of see the black hole silhouetted um, against the, the gas. But once that hot gas has fallen in, you wouldn't see any light. Black holes are really, really massive. Um, they start at a few times, roughly 10 times the mass of our sun, um, and they go up to maybe 100 times the mass of our sun. Okay, so they're really, really big things. Um, now, several times in this talk, we are going to think in terms of what we call solar masses. Neutron stars are slightly lighter. So they are still ultra, ultra dense, dead stellar cores, um, but they're not quite as heavy as black holes. Um, they might be sort of two times the, the mass of the sun. Okay. Um, and these two objects are relevant to our story today because they're so big, so heavy. Sorry, I should clarify that. They are so heavy, but they're not so big. So, so they're actually quite compact objects. And that means they're really, really dense. Lots of mass packed into a really small volume. And that means that, um, remember we said that, that massive objects bend space-time, that any special effects in Einstein's theory are going to be really pronounced for these objects, because right? they've got so much mass in such a small region. Okay, so that's why they are the place that we, we look to when we look for kind of effects of Einstein's theory. So, stars very often live in pairs, what we would call a binary, and they'll spend millions of years happily orbiting around each other, stably. And once both those stars have, have died, have used up their fuel, they can both um, collapse to form these objects. So you can end up with a pair of black holes, or a pair of neutron stars, or you can have the mixed case. You can have one black hole and one neutron star. And those, those dead stellar cores will carry on orbiting each other. So we've got our orbits going around each other, and much like ripples, when you, you throw a stone into a pond, there's this, this pattern that, that travels outwards. So these ripples, these waves, are gravitational waves. And they have that name because they are ripples in the fabric of space and time itself. So they are ripples in the fabric of space that is the same thing that gives us gravity. Okay, that's, that's why they have that name. That's what gravitational waves are. Now, um, this little um, video here isn't quite accurate because in this video, uh, the objects just go round each other forever. That's not what happens in nature. What happens is, as those objects orbit around each other, they take energy away from the system with these gravitational waves they're emitting. And that means the um, objects will start to get closer and closer, and they'll get so close that eventually they will touch, and then they will merge. So our two black holes will basically cannibalize each other and form a single big black hole. Okay? And there's something similar happens with the neutron stars. So I've got another video showing you that. 
Okay, so this time they're going to um, they're going to they're going to eat each other. Um, this uh, is what we call in spiral, uh, in spiral and merger, the technical terms. As they get closer and closer, the waves get larger and larger, and they actually get faster and faster as well. And then they merge, they form that single black hole, and then everything settles down. Once you've got to a single black hole or neutron star sitting there, that doesn't emit gravitational waves. You need this special pattern of two objects going around each other to shake up space-time in this way and produce gravitational waves. So this gives us um, two really useful things. We found the best place to go looking for gravitational waves. We said it was those really massive objects, right? Black holes and neutron stars. And actually now we've seen that there's a characteristic signal we can go look for. The gravitational waves should get louder and louder, faster and faster, and then they should die away in those last moments before the black holes merge. So how do we detect them? You can't detect them with a regular telescope because they're not made of light. So you need a very, very special piece of kit. Um, so special, in fact, there are only five of these in existence in the world right now. Um, there is a sixth one under construction there in India. Um, okay, what do these detectors look like? Well, they're huge. Um, here are photos, aerial photos, of the two detectors in the USA. Um, this pair are called the LIGO detectors. That stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Um, and they're on opposite sides of the USA. Um, so this one's called Livingston. It's in Louisiana. The one in the top left is um, called Hanford. Uh, it's in Washington. Uh, sorry, Washington State, that is. And the reason they're, they're on opposite sides of the USA, that's, that's not accidental. It's so that they're really um, independent of each other. And so if they both see the kind of same signal at the same time, that's an extra bit of verification for us that it was something that came from outer space. It wasn't, you know, um, an earthquake or something like that. Okay, and you can see these detectors have these huge, great tubes coming out of them. We call them arms and they're four kilometers long. And each detector consists of a pair of two arms at right angles. Um, usually we can't get the second arm fully in the photo because they're, they're too big. Um, and where those arms meet, there's obviously some kind of um, building, there's, there's something happening. Okay, so what's, what's going on here? Here is a cut-down version of, of what's going on. Um, so what happens is somewhere in that, that building, we shine a very high power laser at something called a beam splitter. That's the, the diagonal object in the middle. And that beam splitter chops that laser beam into two identical copies. And we send those two copies of the laser beam off down these four kilometer long arms. They bounce off mirrors, special kinds of mirrors, at the ends, and they're brought back together. And we add those laser beams together, we say we interfere them. Okay. So, um, light is a wave, or at least you can often think of it as a wave. Um, and so the, the default setup of the detectors is such that when we bring those two laser beams back together and we add them, we can think of adding these two waves. And in the default setup, when there's no gravitational wave present, 
everything's arranged such that the, the peak of one wave um, sits over the, the dip, the trough of another wave, and so the two waves, when added, cancel each other out. And that means we don't get any light out at the final detector here. Okay, we call this destructive interference. What's going to happen when a gravitational wave passes through is that it will change the length of these arms. So, I am a gravitational wave detector. Um, a gravitational wave is going to come at me face on. And by the way, gravitational waves will pass straight through you. They'll pass straight through the detector, straight through the Earth, out the other side and keep on going. Okay, but what happens is that that gravitational wave causes the length of one of my arms to temporarily shrink just a little bit. Obviously, I'm going to exaggerate here. And it will make the other arm stretch a little bit. And then, a short while later, it's going to reverse the pattern. So it will shrink this arm and stretch this arm. And that pattern will alternate backwards and forwards. So this is the gravitational wave detector dance. Okay, I'm told, I'm told all the kids are doing it on TikTok. Okay, okay so, so, so why does that matter? What happens when the lengths of those arms change is that our two light waves in our laser beams get shifted past each other. And now we can have a situation where the two peaks are, are in sync, and that means the light beams add together, um, we call this constructive interference, and you get light coming out. Okay, so light reaches the detector. And the precise pattern of this light, how it changes over time, tells us things about that gravitational wave that passed through. Now, what blows my mind every time is the sensitivity that these detectors have to have to detect gravitational waves. Because these waves are coming from millions, if not billions, of light, light years away. By the time they reach us, they're, they're absolutely tiny. So these detectors can detect a change in arm length one ten thousandth the size of a proton. I mean, if you thought atoms were small enough, and a proton is about a factor uh, of a thousand smaller than that, a proton is a, is a particle that sits in the, the nucleus of an atom, so a thousand times smaller, and then one ten thousandth of that. I mean, it is just mind-blowing. Okay, and that's why you don't feel gravitational waves passing through you, um, because if they do pass through you, the, the, the changes they would cause in your body are just so much smaller than kind of all the other things going on inside your body anyway. Okay, so you can't feel them. So these are incredible bits of kit, incredible bits of engineering, and it took decades of work, um, but we did eventually have our first detection on the 14th of September, 2015. And we give these detections their, their sort of um, signature call signs. So they all have a, a, a name. Um, they get called GW for gravitational waves, surprisingly. And then the numbers after it give the date of the detection, but sort of backwards. So you have to read it backwards. So it's the 14th of September, 2015. I don't think I can put into words for you how exciting it was to be, you know, sitting in a physics department and, you know, someone comes and knocks on your door and says, have you heard the news, right? They've detected these things for the first time. It's incredible. 
Um, so here's what we know about this first event. So this was a black hole binary merger. Um, they have masses of 36 and 29 times the mass of the sun. Okay, so that symbol M with the sort of circle below it is our, our way of saying solar masses. Okay, that unit we, we met earlier. Um, so these are really big black holes. These were whoppers. Um, they merge and we're left with a final black hole, which we measure has a mass of 62 solar masses. Now, if anyone's good at quick mental arithmetic, you will spot that 36 plus 29 does not equal 62. Okay, 36 plus 29 is 65. So we've lost three solar masses somewhere in this event. And what's happened is all that mass, three times the mass of the sun, has been converted into pure energy and dumped into space-time over a period of about half a second. Okay, that is the energy of these things, and that's actually the energy it takes to generate gravitational waves. That's just how, how stiff space-time is. Down the bottom there, we have the real gravitational wave data detected by our, our two detectors. So Livingston and Hanford are the two LIGO detectors. Um, and it's spread over about half a second. You might just be able to see the, the, the numbers at the bottom of the, the screen there. And you see over here, it just starts out as noise. It's just kind of jumbling in the detectors. But then about 0.3 seconds, there starts to emerge a, a clear a wave, right, a, a pattern. And it's there in both the red and the orange. And in sync, the waves get larger and larger, and they get smaller and smaller spacing, so they get faster and faster, and then the signal dies away again. Okay, and that's exactly what we were looking for when we said, you know, that's our characteristic signal of gravitational waves. Now, um, here's the same data, just presented slightly differently. We can talk about a wavelength of these gravitational waves. So that means that the spacing between two peaks. And it just happens that the spacing, the, the wavelength of these gravitational waves, is about the same as the wavelength of sound that the human ear can hear. Okay, so sound itself is a wave. It's caused by um, pressure waves um, in the air molecules that fill the room. Okay, so if I go and smack the desk, oh, I won't do it too loudly near all of this stuff, um, I set up pressure waves um, which travel to your ears. And that means I can actually convert this gravitational wave into a sound wave that you can hear. So we're going to do this. I'm going to play you these sounds of space-time. Um, it's going to be quite quick, so what's going to happen is you'll hear it twice, and then you'll hear it twice more, but shifted up in pitch, and that makes it just a little bit easier to hear. Here we go. Okay, so there's this sort of um, general sort of rumbling noise. That's just the noise in the detectors. But then hopefully you could hear, to start with, this kind of low thump, right? It sounds like someone kind of punching a cushion, I think. Um, and then when we played it a little bit higher, there's this kind of whoop sound. It's quite quick, but it's there. So that's the sound of this particular event. Okay, and that was our first detection. 
Now, we didn't have to wait very long to get a second event. A few months later, um, on the 26th of December 2015, so again, the call sign, GW151226, um, affectionately known as the Boxing Day event. Somebody had their, their Christmas severely disrupted by this one. This time, the black holes were smaller, so they're about 14 and 8 times the mass of the Sun versus the kind of 30 solar masses we had before. Now, smaller black holes produce gravitational waves with a smaller spacing, a smaller wavelength. And that means the sound they make is higher in pitch. So I'll play you this one. Um, what this video is going to do is going to compare the two events we've talked about. So confusingly, it's going to play the second event first and the first event second. <laughs> okay, so it's going to reverse the chronological order. Again, you'll hear it twice, and again, it'll shift up in pitch just to make it that little bit easier to hear. Okay, now you definitely heard those ones, right? What we're understanding is that each gravitational wave event is a bit like an instrument in an orchestra, right? It, it makes its own sounds. Hopefully you could hear that the, the second event kind of whoop, and the first event whoop. Okay, so they, they have these different pitches. You just want me to make more silly sounds all evening. Yeah. I know, I know. Um, so we, we carried on detecting these events um, for a couple of years more. And actually, um, as of today, there are 91 confirmed gravitational wave events. So you can see we've got this big block of, of black holes somewhere in the region of sort of 10 to 50 solar masses. Um, we even have a few remnants getting up to maybe 100 solar masses, really big ones. And then we've got a much smaller handful of the neutron stars. Um, and that's because the neutron stars are quieter. And what I mean by that is because they're less massive, the waves they produce are, are, are less big, basically. They're, they're, they're harder to detect. So it doesn't really mean there are less neutron stars out there. It just means we're not as good at hearing them yet. Nevertheless, one of my favourite events, um, and indeed an event that was really, really important in my career, it's actually the event that got me started as a gravitational wave astronomer, is one of the binary neutron stars. Um, affectionately known as 170817. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't really work, does it? Um, so this was the first binary neutron star merger that we detected, the first case that wasn't black holes. So neutron stars remember these ultra-dense dead stellar cores, but they're not black holes. And because they're not black holes, that means light can escape from a neutron star. And that is the big, big difference. Um, so I have another little video to play you. We had our two white objects. Those were, were neutron stars. It's a bit hard to say what colour a neutron star actually is. Um, and you saw them in spiral and merge. And as they did, there was, there was gravitational waves coming out. 
But once they merged, all this other stuff started happening. So you saw these huge jets come out of it. Um, and this is something we call a gamma ray burst. This is um, the you know, cata cataclysmic um, amount of energy that is released when those two objects smash into each other. It throws out these jets of ultra-high energy radiation. Okay, gamma rays are the most energetic form of light that we have, so this stuff is, is lethal. Um, so that powers out into the surrounding space. And remember, that's light. So there's the gravitational waves being emitted, yep, but now there's light coming out as well. So something a telescope might be able to see. So first of all, we get the gamma ray burst. Then there's this kind of blue fluffy pom-pom that seems to expand out the center. Uh, this is the kilonova. Um, so what this is, is um, matter that's in those neutron stars, because again, not black holes, so there's still matter that can get out. It's, it's matter, it's dust, it's very neutron-rich dust being kicked up and, and thrown out. And actually, these, these neutron star collisions are responsible for making um, a lot of the heavy elements in the universe. So if you've got a gold wedding ring or if you've got silver, excuse me, silver jewellery, um, a lot of the gold and silver in the universe, probably most of it, is made in these events. Okay? And over millions, billions of years, this, this dust spreads out into space and ultimately collapses to form things like stars and planets. So the kilonova itself also emits light, um, slightly less energetic, um, light that we can see in the optical waveband, so things we could, in, in principle, see with our eyes, although we can't see things this, this faint. So that means this is an event that we can hear and we can see at the same time. Okay, so here's the, the real data. Um, this is a set of images taken on the left about half a day after the, the event, um, and on the right about two weeks after the event. Um, you're not looking at the bright object in the center. That is the center of the galaxy in which this event took place. Instead, you are looking at the small faint, well, fainter spot where the crosshairs are. And it's there in the left-hand image, and then two weeks later, it's gone. Now, that's pretty rare in astronomy. Most things in the universe evolve on a timescale of millions of years. There are very few things that you know, we can actually catch coming and going on a, on a timescale of two weeks. It's very you know, human-friendly. Um, so that is the kilonova. That's that, that blue, fluffy pom-pom thing. Um, and that's, that's then light from the event, but we also have the gravitational wave detection. So let's play this one. This sound is going to start quite quiet. Okay, so if you think it's not playing, it is, but we just have to be really quiet. could play those all day. Okay, so um, what do you notice? Um, it was a much longer sound. It started really quiet, but it was a much longer sound. And that's because these neutron stars, the, the gravitational waves that they produce, are, although they're quieter, they are detectable to us for longer, if we, if we can detect them. So we get um, many more, what we call many more cycles, right? Many more um, orbits of the binary neutron star before they finally merge. And so we get a, a longer sound. 
As I mentioned, this event was really important to me because seeing and hearing the event at the same time meant we could do something really incredible that we hadn't been able to do before. And this was something I took part in. Um, we could see what happens in a race between the gravitational waves and the light. So what we want to do here is effectively measure the speed at which gravitational waves travel. And I call it a race because these things are going to set off at the same time from our, our binary neutron star merger. They're going to travel the same distance to the Earth, so we see who gets there first. If that happens, if one event arrives earlier than the other, that means it must have been travelling faster. Right? So we can use the information about which we saw first to say which one's the fastest. So here comes the second equation of the talk. Uh, and again, I hope it's something that's familiar to a lot of people. Um, if you did high school physics, you might remember that you can measure a speed as taking the distance travelled divided by the time taken to travel that distance. Now, um, we don't quite use this formula in astronomy. I'll be totally honest, it's a little bit more complicated, the actual calculation we do. But basically, it's a poshed-up version of this. Okay. Um, OK, so what have we got? We need to know the distance to our binary neutron star. That's 40 megaparsecs. Me what megaparsec? What's that? Um, that is another unit that astronomers define to try and make the mind-blowing numbers we work with every day manageable. So actually, a, a megaparsec in meters is about 30,000, thousand, 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 thousand meters. <laughs> okay, but we, if, when we define these units, we can just say it's 40 megaparsecs, and it sounds like it's a kind of, you know, just around the corner. Um, if you prefer thinking of it this way, that's about the length of the UK, um, 1,000 kilometres, 600 miles if you're um, imperial, um, multiplied by the number of grains of sand on the planet. Yikes. Uh, OK, that's the distance. Um, and the time it takes, well, we know the speed of light already. So we, we know that part of the problem. We know it would take light 130 million years to travel that distance. What we don't know is the speed of gravitational waves. And in the real experiment, um, what we found is that the gravitational waves arrive first. They arrive about two seconds before the light does. Okay, so their travel time, 130 million years minus two seconds. So it seems that gravitational waves travel at, or at least very, 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 very close to the speed of light. And that's actually a win for Einstein, because that's exactly what he predicted. His general theory of relativity says that gravitational waves should travel at the speed of light. Okay, so Einstein wins. Now you might say, why do we bother doing this? You know, we know Einstein's theory is correct. You know, why, why did you need to go and check that gravitational waves travel at the speed of light? Actually, that's slightly oversimplifying the, the situation. For me as a cosmologist, if Einstein's theory is fully correct, that means there's something else very wrong with our current understanding of the universe. So we take Einstein's theory that seems to work really well every time we test it, and we apply it to the universe as a whole. And we can ask it the question, 
how fast is the universe expanding? Okay, and Einstein's theory oh, says it should be, you know, expanding at, at a moderate rate or a constant rate. And actually what we find when we use other data to, to measure the um, speed of expansion of the universe is that we find it's speeding up. It is actually accelerating. And that's completely, you know, almost the opposite of what Einstein's theory predicts. So there's a problem here. There's something going wrong. Either Einstein's theory is incorrect and we can't apply it to the universe as a whole, which means there's still more we need to learn about gravity, or we have something else in our universe. Okay, and we don't know what this something else is, so as a placeholder for our ignorance, we give it a name that makes us feel better about it, and we call it dark energy. But if this dark energy, this strange new substance that causes the universe to accelerate, if it exists, it has to make up 70% of the universe. Okay, so this, this is just a simulation here showing um, galaxies and dark matter in the universe, but 70% of that has to be made of something else. So if I've given you the impression at all this evening that cosmology and gravity is kind of sewn up and done and dusted, um, please forgive me, that is certainly not the case. There are major, major questions that we are still trying to answer. Okay, folks, I'm nearly done for this evening. Um, let me just wrap up by telling you about the gravitational wave detections that are about to start. So these detectors, they've actually been offline for about three years. And that was um, initially due to the pandemic. We had to take them offline for the safety of the people working there. And then they were having a lot of engineering work done, as you can see, to make them more sensitive. They were having upgrades. That's basically all done now. And our next observing run is due to start in five days' time. Okay, so this talk is super well-timed. Um, it starts on the 24th of May, which is next Wednesday. Um, now, actually, as I said at the start of the talk, things have started happening already. Um, right now, we are in engineering mode, which means we're not fully calibrated. We're not supposed to be seeing anything. But if something happens, you know, and the engineers are there testing the detectors, but they're online, we can't help but detect it. Okay, so we have our first candidate event. Um, maybe it'll be confirmed, we have to see yet. But nevertheless, five days time, we switch on. Um, so doubtless we will see um, more black holes, more neutron stars, and hopefully a few more unexpected discoveries along the way too. If you would like to follow along, you can do. Um, there is an app on your phone, called, well, it's not on your phone right now, sorry. There is an app for your phone, if you wish it to be on your phone, um, called Gravitational Wave Events. What this does is it plugs into a set of alerts that are sent out worldwide if we find something interesting. So you can get a notification on your phone. Um, if, you, if you choose the settings correctly, it will actually play you one of these gravitational wave chirps. So your phone can go whoop when you've got a gravitational wave detection. I mean, it's just pretty cool. Um, alternatively, of course, if you don't want your phone going whoop all the time, you can um, follow um, the LIGO detectors on Twitter. Okay, I will leave it there, folks. Thank you so much for listening, and I look forward to some questions.
Thanks for listening. Remember to give us a rating and a review to let us know what you think and to help more people discover the podcast. And to learn about other fascinating science topics, you can join our upcoming talks in person or online. Head to rigb.org to get tickets.